Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the person whose idea of a fun vacation is camping out in Uber's air vents, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. Today, I'm seating my chair to Kurt Wagner, Recode's senior social media editor. Kurt is speaking with Nirav Tolia, the co-founder and CEO of Nextdoor, a social networking website built around neighborhoods. Nirav was previously the CEO of ePinions and has advised companies such as Zillow, SurveyMonkey, and Quip. Take it away, Kurt. Thank you, Kara. I'm here with... Next door CEO Nirev Tolia. Thank you, Nirev Tolia. Tolia, yes, very got close. That right, that was good. Uh, we're in our beautiful San Francisco office, and you're literally sitting in the red chair. Have you been in the red chair before? I was not even aware that a red chair existed, but oh, I feel very special being here today. Yeah, good. Well, we're glad you're here. So thank you uh, for being here. And so you're the CEO of Next Door. Let's go ahead and. I guess, tell people what Nextdoor is before. Uh, we're going to talk about that a lot, obviously. But I think for now, I always describe it as the Facebook for your neighborhood. Do you like that description or not so much? It's an effective description because people know what Facebook is. Now, specifically, we say Nextdoor is a private social network for your neighborhood. And the way you use Nextdoor, which is your neighbors create all the content, there's a news feed, uh, there's a mobile app that you can use anytime you want. Those things are very similar to Facebook. So it's helpful to say that we're like Facebook, but it's actually pretty different because we're not talking about your friends on Nextdoor, we're talking about your neighbors. Right, and you have to actually authenticate that you live in a specific neighborhood, like you have to show some kind of proof to you guys. So it is it is pretty exclusive in that sense. It's private, not exclusive. Private, as long okay. as you live in the neighborhood, you can join. But the whole idea is that we want to try to make it safe to talk about the things online that you would feel safe talking offline. So if you're on your front porch having a conversation with your neighbors, you would have a certain kind of conversation because you would know that the people you're talking to are actually your neighbors. On the internet, for the most part, we're talking with people virtually, and we don't quite know in many cases who those people are. And Nextdoor is, it's so centric to your neighborhood that it's really valuable to be able to limit that conversation to the people who truly live around you. Gotcha. Okay, well, we're going to come back to that. Obviously, we're going to spend a good chunk of this time talking about Nextdoor, but I want to talk about you first because... This will be a short conversation. No, this is is the fun part of the conversation. Uh, I actually didn't realize, this is kind of your second stint in Silicon Valley. Like, you were here during the dot-com boom, had a startup, sold your startup, left for a little bit, came back, now you're doing Nextdoor, but... Like, let's start with, with your first go-around here, ePinions, Yeah, I, right? never, I never really left. I've spent my entire career, my entire working career since 1996 has been in Silicon Valley. Okay. And so have largely lived here my entire life. I grew up in Texas yeah. and then ultimately uh, came to Stanford for undergrad, and that was in the early 90s. And so now I've spent more time in the Bay Area than I've spent anywhere else in my life. I had a, a very short but extremely sweet experience living in New York City for a couple of years. And that was really fun. That was in between Opinions, the company that you mentioned, and what has now become Nextdoor. And so I did have a little respite uh, between jobs, I guess you could say. But I always feel like, um, from a professional standpoint, that I'm a lifelong Silicon Valley person, and I consider it home. How do you go from 
Texas, and I'm told that the town you grew up in is the Friday Night Lights town. Is that right? Yes, I grew up. I'm I'm a proud, proud, Football proud town. resident of Odessa, Texas. Nice, and that's in West Texas. It's equidistant between El Paso and Dallas, which is to say, sort of in the middle of nowhere, 300 miles from each of those big cities. And the high school that I went to is called Odessa Permian High School, yep. which is the high school that was written about in the nonfiction book Friday Night Lights, which went on to become a movie and then a TV show, and that high school uh, is one that I attended and loved and, and always wanted to go to from the time that I was really young. And I was the class of 1990 at Odessa Permian. The book Friday Night Lights was written about the class of 89. Ah, so, so I was going to say, who played who played you in the movie, right? <laughs> uh, no one played me, and uh, there would be no reason for anyone to play me. Not but a football guy. I used to tell people that um, there were folks in the book that I am Facebook friends with. And so that's a little bit of a claim to fame. That's so if you've fun. read the book and you know some of the characters, you can look up my friends on Facebook and uh, those are real people that I'm friends with. Very cool. So how do you go from, you know, kind of middle of nowhere, Texas to Silicon Valley, especially, you know, in the 90s when all of the tech stuff was still very new, right? Yeah, it wasn't really driven by a, a desire to come to Silicon Valley per se. I just wanted to go to the best college that I could get into, and that happened to be Stanford. I think I might have been the first person to ever apply to Stanford from my high school. So it was very unusual to even go out of state. Texas, obviously, a very large state. And the majority of my classmates were going to University of Texas, Texas A&M, Texas Tech. We even have a, a four-year college in Odessa called UTPB, University mm-hmm. of Texas of the Permian Basin. And so uh, for me to go to Stanford was a little bit of a stretch, but I'm the child of, of a couple of Indian immigrants. And so not originally from Texas. My parents are from India, and then they immigrated to this country, and we made our way to Texas. And I always had ambition, probably because of my parents, to try to go to the best school that I could. And I was really lucky to end up at Stanford. Yeah, and so you get out there. What did you say? You were, you're not like a computer science major, though, right? And, I and wish yet, that I were. I, I, yeah. will, I will be encouraging my three sons to study computer science. But no, I wanted to be a doctor. Both okay. my parents are doctors. And uh, my younger brother now is a doctor. He's actually married to a woman who's also a doctor. So I'm, I'm literally, besides my wife, whose sister is a doctor, the only non-MD in my family. And so I always thought that I would follow my dad's footsteps. My dad's an eye surgeon, cataract surgeon. Uh, and has had a great career over many, many, many years. Still lives in Odessa, Texas, and practices medicine there. And so my idea was to go to Stanford to be a pre-med and ultimately to follow my dad's footsteps. So you're you're a Stanford grad, a tech CEO, and somehow the least... The person who's not the doctor the in the least family. Well how, does that, how does that work uh, out? By far, it's great because whenever <laughs> I need a physician, there's one very close at hand. But, you know, I think the bigger thing for me is my parents uh, and really sort of their entire background culturally education was was a very, very big priority for us. And so uh, one of the interesting things that happened uh, when I ultimately left Stanford and found myself uh, at Yahoo is my parents didn't have really any understanding at that point of the business world. So whether it was a famous business company like a Wall Street bank or whether it was a, an emerging tech company like Yahoo, my parents didn't really have any context because not only were they not American growing up, but they were physicians. They weren't in the business world. And so when I joined Yahoo, they were very supportive as they've always been. And, and they were probably wondering at the same time, what the heck is our is our son doing? And I remember coming home a couple months after I started at Yahoo and my mom saying, 
Yeah, you know, the only tough thing is when I talk to my friends and and they they say he had so much great potential and he left Odessa and he went to Stanford and now he works for a company that manufactures chocolate milk. And I sort of looked at my mom like, what are you talking oh about? Gosh. Chocolate milk. And it turns out there is a chocolate milk company Yoo-hoo. called Yoohoo. <laughs> and literally there were people in Odessa that thought that I had gone from Stanford to either manufacture or deliver chocolate milk. Thankfully, that was not the case. Wow. Uh, Yoohoo's blast from the past. I remember Yoohoo's as a kid. I've dated myself and you, Kurt. Yeah, apparently. Um, okay, so you're at Stanford. You mentioned Yahoo. That's your first job out of college, right? How- yep. Tell us kind of how you go from Yahoo then to ePinions. And also, ePinions, what a name. Like, that is like the perfect dot com yes, name. Very, very I think ePinions sold to shopping.com, right? Like, could those names be any more? Yes, and, and now Nextdoor, right? So Nextdoor.com. So I'm, yeah. I'm a fan of the literal dot uh, com domain name, I guess. Well, let me first say that joining Yahoo was like winning a lottery ticket. I was one of the first 100 employees. Uh, I was not qualified. I was very bottom of the totem pole in terms of my role. And it was such a blessing to be able to be part of a company like Yahoo. That was 1996. Uh, By the time I left in the middle of 1999, I think there were over 10,000 employees. Mm. The market cap had gone from probably half a billion to over 100 billion uh, during the time that, that I had been there. And just an incredible vantage point to see and experience firsthand everything that was going on in Silicon Valley at the time, because Yahoo back then was sort of Facebook, Google, Uber, Airbnb, all of these great companies rolled into one. I used to tell people that I would walk down University Avenue in Palo Alto with my Yahoo t-shirt on and literally get mobbed. People loved Yahoo so much. And so um, the thing that I took away, and I took away lots of things, but at the very top was this notion that you could actually make a living working on something that could reach hundreds of millions of people and make their lives better. Mm-hmm. And that was that was a really interesting and I think valuable thing to be exposed to at a young age because I've been chasing it professionally ever since. That notion of working on something that could really impact the world in a positive way at scale. And so the interesting thing about my time at Yahoo is um, it really was like winning a lottery because I used to tell people, as great as the company is, if I were run over by a truck tomorrow, the company probably wouldn't even notice that I was gone. Yeah, what were you doing there? I started as a surfing Yahoo, which is something that probably most people don't even know what that title means. But Yahoo started as a guide to the internet, essentially a a catalog of websites uh, that, that would describe the different things that you could learn on the internet. And there was a team of surfing Yahoos that would be responsible for taking the submissions that folks were making to Yahoo to be in the Yahoo directory and categorize them. And uh, I guess I was really lucky to be hired as one of those surfers. You didn't have to have a computer science degree. I think you needed to be essentially a smart generalist that could take websites, look at them, very quickly understand what they were about, and then in almost an ontological way, understand where they should be categorized. And so I started there. Literally cataloging the internet. Yeah, I mean, what Google does with with an algorithm is what Yahoo did with humans. And Hmm. um, obviously, the explosion of information on the internet has made it extremely difficult to catalog all of that information with humans. And that's why Google has really come to the fore now. You need to solve that problem with technology. But in the early days, Yahoo did it all manually. And and as I sort of think about 
some of the things that I did at Opinions, which is all about user-generated content and online community, and now Nextdoor, that was a little bit uh, what I was doing at Yahoo. It was very manual. It was uh, relying on the wisdom of crowds. It was less algorithmic and much more humanistic. Okay. Um, but at the same time, when I was there and after being a surfer, I ultimately became uh, – I think I was called at one point a brand assistant, which is the lowest guy on the totem pole in the marketing department. And so I was learning how to be a brand manager and lots of exposure, not just in my specific job, but in just being at Yahoo. Just being there, you got to see so much and be part of so many cool things. And that's something that that really stuck with me. I did feel, however, that I wanted to be the person at some point that was more directly responsible for the success or failure of the company. And so on the side, when I was at Yahoo, I started a little nonprofit with a couple of friends. And it wasn't ever meant to be anything big. It was just a couple of us getting together and meeting once a month to talk about entrepreneurial ideas because we all knew that we wanted to start our own companies. We called the group Round Zero. It's like a social club, right? It it was less of a social club, although it was around a dinner. It was more of almost a... Um, it was a support group for entrepreneurs, and it wasn't about social things per se. It was about getting together to talk about ideas that you might want to start uh, as a real entrepreneur. And you could do that uh, with support in Silicon Valley, which is one of the things that's so special about Silicon Valley. Uh, you have people you can talk to that have either done it or are dreaming of doing it. And so we started this thing, Round Zero. It's a name that Uh, tries to approximate before you get round one financing. Where are you? You're at round zero. And in a number of years, uh, that became, I think, one of the more popular monthly dinners in Silicon Valley for entrepreneurs. Well, big names, too. I mean, I've seen photos. I think it was, you know, Johnny I was there and Marissa was there. That was much later. That was actually much later. Yeah, that was later on. But that's the same group, correct? The same. Well, you know, at the time, the big names were not big. So if you think about it, round zero was about people getting together before they had actually started these companies and in the early stages of their careers. And so I think, for example, uh, Larry Page came to a couple of our dinners, but that was before he's the Larry Page that he is today, because that was 1998 or so. And so there were a number of folks. Reed Hoffman was another one that uh, I was quite close to even back then. In fact, he was one of our facilitators. We had facilitators at each table and would talk about different issues that were being raised uh, during during that time in Silicon Valley. And so it was not about bringing prominent people together. It was about bringing entrepreneurs together. And it just so happens that a lot of those entrepreneurs have become prominent. For me, it was an opportunity to really sort of spread my wings outside of Yahoo and be a little bit more on the firing line in terms of responsibility for success or failure. And so with a group of, of friends, really, who co-founded this thing, um, that was my first startup. Now, it wasn't about a business model or venture funding or any of those things. But some of the things you have to do in a startup, primarily starting something from nothing, that was my first experience doing that. And that gave me a lot of the courage that I could leave Yahoo, which was an amazing job, and start my own company. Right, which was ePinions, correct? And so it's still around, correct? It's part of eBay now, is yes, that right? Yes, Opinions ultimately merged with a New York-based company called DealTime, and we rebranded the corporate entity as Shopping.com, but the Opinions website remained, and then it was bought by eBay after Shopping.com went public. And Opinions does exist. I don't think it's very vibrant, yeah. unfortunately, but it does still exist. I don't think I've exist. ever used it, but it sounds like an early version of Yelp, right? You're, you're going out to the internet 
you're asking internet users to review things. What what products uh, did you get to restaurants and hotels and all that as it well? It was much more products focused. So Yelp is about services and service providers, and Opinions was about products. Back then, a lot of people were getting into digital cameras and big screen TVs and even books. And and the inspiration for the idea was uh, Amazon had come on the scene in the mid to late 90s and had pioneered this notion of a customer review, where the books that Amazon was selling, and then later on the movies and all the other products, they would be reviewed not by professional reviewers like, say, Walt Mossberg, but by consumers. And so opinions, electronic opinions, that was the way the name was created, was this notion that everybody is an expert at something. If you can harness that expertise, you can help everyone make better buying decisions. And that ultimately was the mission of the company to use the power of technology to help people make better buying decisions. And did people were people ready at that time to get their product reviews from strangers online? Or did they still want Walt Mossberg to tell them that, you know, this new computer is the right one to buy? If they had a choice, they would pick Walt. But if you think about Walt, he maybe reviews 15 to 20 things a year. And in the universe of things that you could possibly buy, there are thousands of things, if not tens of thousands of things. And so, again, what I think the internet has shown us over and over again is the editorial model is really valuable and it's super high quality, but there is this long tail of items. And that long tail of items or services or information, we can all be content creators to add to the Mm -hmm. knowledge around those items. And in our case, it was this notion that, look, first of all, many of the things you want to buy have not been professionally reviewed, either by Walt Mossberg or Consumer Reports. Second of all, you may actually want to get a review from someone who's like you versus someone who is a professional Mm -hmm. reviewer. So in that sense, I think it was a very, very early version of almost a social network. Yeah, a little more relatable that way. So then, real quick transition from from ePinions, you guys have that for a couple years, what, four or five years? You said you sold it or emerged with Shopping.com. My understanding is you were kind of the last man standing at that point, right? So it didn't quite, it obviously wasn't the next, it wasn't the first Yelp, but someone wanted it. So what happened there? Opinions was a very high flyer initially. Uh, It was a company that that was launched almost uh, by a press article in the New York Times Magazine called Instant Company that talked about how quickly this company was being built. And really, the notable thing about Opinions is the co-founders were all folks who had spent time in some of what we called the first-generation internet companies. So I'd been at Yahoo. Co-founders of mine had been at Netscape and Excite at Home and and some of the early pioneers uh, of that era. No one was really leaving those popular companies to start new companies. Now it's really commonplace for someone from Google to start a new company or someone from Facebook to leave and start a new company. But that wasn't the case back then. And so we were, I I think, very hyped initially. We had great investors, including Bill Gurley, someone that I've been lucky enough to work with since 1999. Investor in Nextdoor. Investor in Nextdoor as well. And, And so we had a lot of hype initially. I think the concept was a very good concept, this notion that you could harness the uh, hive mind or the collective intelligence of the internet to provide information on a category of things that's really valuable, which is the sorts of things that you'd spend money on. Um, But ultimately, like many things of that era, 
we weren't that disciplined, we weren't that experienced, we weren't that knowledgeable. We made, and I would say I personally made every mistake in the book, and so at various points, Opinions was on the verge of complete bankruptcy and failure. And we were super fortunate, even through massive layoffs and down financing rounds and all the things that you never want to experience, but you learn a lot if you do experience them. We were able to get through all of those things, ultimately merge with another private company, that was in 2003, go public in 2004, and then the company was bought in 2005. And so it was founded in 1999. It's kind of crazy that you, you're on the verge of bankruptcy and yet you're still able to go public. Well, that's it? those two things did not happen synchronously. So sure. the verge of bankruptcy was in 2001, 2002, when many dot-coms were becoming dot-bombs. The IPO was in 2004. So it was really more of, of almost, if you think of a sine curve, that's how the fate of, of opinions went up and down and sort of all around. And the good news is, with a purchase by eBay for $620 million, ultimately, it ended on a relatively yeah. high point. Let's fast forward just a little bit. Uh, there was a little time in New York. You come back and you go work at Benchmark which is arguably the most well-known venture capital firm, one of the most well-known venture capital firms here in Silicon Valley. You're an EIR. What exactly does that mean, and why did you go work there? Yeah, I guess going back to people thinking that I worked at a chocolate milk company, YooHoo, uh, being an <laughs> EIR is a similarly confusing thing, not a well-known title. But I'd worked with Bill Gurley since 1999, uh, thought – back then, almost from the very beginning, and continue to believe today that he's one of the very best in the business. And so when he gave me the opportunity to uh, come to Benchmark as an entrepreneur in residence, uh, that was something that that felt like, uh, again, an incredible blessing and an amazing opportunity. And he made it even sweeter by also bringing in someone that I'd hired at Epinions as one of the first dozen employees, Sarah Leary. And that was someone that I'd worked with at that point for many years and wanted to start a company with. And so uh, Sarah and I joined Benchmark as EIRs. And the idea behind being an entrepreneur in residence is you have the support of a venture fund to sit in their office uh, to... Uh, discuss ideas with them to get a feel for the kinds of entrepreneurs that are pitching them. And ultimately, you come up with your own idea and you leave the venture capital firm, presumably funded by that firm, and you begin your entrepreneurial journey. So coming back from New York, I knew that I wanted to start another company. And I I knew that I wanted to start it with Sarah. And I was lucky that she felt the same way. And and then after that, it was a complete no-brainer to try to get Bill to support us and, and almost be part of the team from day one. And so that's what we did at Benchmark. And uh, it was sort of funny because venture capital firms are very different than working in companies. Um, they are a lot quieter. They're a lot smaller. Uh, you're doing much more cerebral work in many cases. And so Sarah and I realized pretty quickly that to be in an environment that we really enjoyed, which Mm -hmm. is more of a company environment where there are more people and there's more operational stuff that's going on. We needed to come up with an idea as quickly as possible so that we could actually leave the the comfy environs of Benchmark and and start uh, what we believe to be or what we hope to be the next huge company. And so- What is the stress level like there though, right? Because I mean, they're they're saying, hey, we believe in you. We believe in Nerev. We think you're going to start something cool. But oh, by the way, like, 
you know, you got about six months, nine months, and we want to see a really great idea. Like, do you just sit there? They don't and put any stress no on time. you at all. There's no time limit. There's no job description. You're not clocking in and clocking out. From that standpoint, it's an incredibly freeing and incredibly supportive environment. We had a lot of internal uh, stress because not only did we want to just get going because the thing we wanted to do was start a company, not just be at a comfy venture capital firm. But I sort of joke about this, but we were both living in San Francisco at the time and Benchmark was down on Sand Hill Road and we just didn't want to do the commute much longer. We really wanted to get started and get going. And so we spent about six months there looking at a variety of different spaces and, and exploring a variety of different ideas, thinking about who else we would want on our founding team. And we were lucky enough to go back to another one of our opinions colleagues, a guy named Prakash Janakaraman, who was a tech lead at Google on the Maps product. And we were able to pull him out. And so by the end of 2007, we had an idea for a company called Fanbase. And we felt there was an opportunity to build the next generation ESPN mm -hmm. using, again, user-generated content, online community, the notion that in many cases fans would have just as valuable a perspective as professional sports writers. And so towards the end of 2007, we were able to convince Prakash to leave Google, which was not easy because he had a great job there and they really appreciated him being there. Uh, but we were able to get him to come out. We had the support of the partnership. We got our first round of financing. And in early 2008, we began working on Fanbase. Which sounds kind of like a Bleacher Report type of Thing, at least the way you just described. Yeah, it. I think that's that's a fair assessment. Bleacher Users Report was are already contributing out there. content. Yeah, it wasn't long form content, and so we thought about it a little bit less as uh, fans writing articles, but more almost again uh, thinking about it as a social network where uh, your favorite players would have pages, and you could upload pictures and videos, and you could leave comments about those players. Uh, and we wanted to be really broad, so we felt that favorite players are not just the really famous ones like Steph Curry or Tom Brady. We were also doing college, and mm -hmm. so my co-founder Sarah, I always tease her, she was a national champion lacrosse player at Harvard. She's in the Harvard Sports Hall of Fame. Fun and, fact. And so she was an All-American several years, and so she had a profile on fan base and uh, there were some really really good pictures of her from back when she was a, a incredible goalie back at Harvard uh, and so it was this notion that so many of us are athletes uh, so many of us love following athletes there isn't a centralized place where we can get information about those athletes and that was the premise ultimately was not a very good premise because we felt like uh, the company was not going to succeed after working at it for about a year and a half. But like all things, it started in a very promising yeah. way. So social network for athletes converts to social network for your neighborhood, essentially. How do you kind of make that pivot? Because I, there's obviously a social element of both, of course, but one feels more celebrity media focused, whereas we already talked a little bit about the private way that Nextdoor operates. Yeah, and I would say calling any of these things social networks is probably a, a fairly broad generalization sure. and just a way to sort of think about the user interface, maybe not the ultimate benefit for members. But when I think about the creation of Nextdoor, it's, it's not unlike thinking about opinions in terms of the ups and downs. I mean, in my career, I've had lots of challenging times. I've had lots of great times. I've learned a lot from the challenging times, and the thing that I feel really uh, fortunate about is that through some of those challenging times, um, I've been able to pave the way for something better. 
So Opinions almost goes out of business, but ultimately is a company that can sustain itself, go public, is sold for hundreds of millions of dollars. Fanbase was a company that we started with the highest of hopes and the biggest of dreams. And even though we got 15 million users in a pretty quick uh, effort, really almost immediately in the first six months after we started, we knew soon thereafter that it wasn't going to work. And so that morning when you wake up and you realize, and it's not the first time you realize it, it's just sort of the first time you acknowledge it to yourself explicitly that the thing you've been working on, the thing that you've been dreaming about is not going to work. That's a very, very tough thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, we struggled with that, me and Sarah and Prakash. Uh, we agonized over it. Ultimately, I went back to Bill and I said, Bill, we've used very little of the money that we've raised. You've been incredibly supportive. Uh, we all started this with the best of intentions, but at the same time, we know now that fan base is never going to be the thing that we wanted it to be. It's never going to be the next great company, and we aspire to build a great company. We'd like to give the money back. And that's a really humbling conversation to have. It's in some ways a very embarrassing conversation mm -hmm. because it really is about admitting failure. And again, I give Bill a lot of credit because Bill said, I understand this happens. Most startups do fail. So the odds were that fan base would fail, not succeed. But you have a great team, and, and I feel that you guys have a lot of talent. Would you be willing to take a few months to see if you could come up with another idea? And if you do, you can use the money that you have in the bank to do it. And um, he gave me a poem that I'm very familiar with, and he knew that I was familiar with it, uh, called If. Uh, and it's a poem that you can see. It's Rudyard Kipling. You can see it in the locker room at Wimbledon. It's really about uh, becoming a man and grabbing uh, the opportunity when it exists. And and in a way, I joke and say Bill was challenging my manhood because he was sort of looking across the table saying, now you say you want to be an entrepreneur and you say you want to create a great company and you care deeply about building things that last in Silicon Valley, but do you really have the guts to take the risk and do it, particularly coming off of this failure of fan base. And I'm so glad he did that because that led to me going back to Sarah and Prakash and saying, do we have a couple more months yeah. in us? And uh, we did. And we were lucky enough to have seven people that uh, had been employed by fan base that also wanted to go through that journey with us. And that summer, which was the summer of 2010, we were lucky enough to come up with the idea for Nextdoor. So then you launched Nextdoor, you talked about kind of what it is on the surface Give us an idea, if you will, like what are what are people using this for, right? I mean, I have Facebook, which is where I have my, a lot of my friends. I have Instagram. I have Twitter. Like I have all these other places, these outlets where I connect with people. What are people actually using Nextdoor for at this point? Yeah, social networks have undeniably become the ubiquitous platforms that we use to connect to people and things that matter. Interestingly, though, all those social networks you mentioned – Rarely do they connect us to the people and things that matter in our local community. And so what people do on Nextdoor is they come together most of the time with their neighbors, sometimes with local agencies like police departments, and increasingly even with local businesses. And they work together to make their neighborhoods and their local communities better. And it could be straightforward things like asking for a babysitter or getting a referral for a plumber. Could be more personal things. I've lost my wallet and I'm looking for someone to help me find it. I've lost my dog. Or it could be absolutely critical things like if there's a natural disaster, a tornado, an earthquake, a hailstorm, making sure people are safe. Uh, or coming together to create almost a virtual neighborhood watch to keep everyone safer. So a lot of those social networks that you mentioned, I would describe them as being about self-expression. 
They're about me telling my friends or people that are interested in knowing about me the things that are on my mind, whether it's pictures of my children or pictures of uh, my vacations or where I work Mm -hmm. or what music I'm listening to. Nextdoor is not at all like that. Nextdoor is not about self-expression. Nextdoor is about utility. It's about coming together with your neighbors to make the neighborhood better for everyone. So how does that change how you build a business then, right? Because these other networks we talked about, a Facebook, a Twitter, they're ad-supported, they're ad-driven. If I'm out expressing myself or sharing content, it's very easy to throw some ads next to that. If we're talking a utility here, I mean, you guys don't have a membership or subscription fee. Uh, You're using ads, very, very early stage of the business, but do you envision kind of following that same footstep of a Facebook or Twitter and doing all ads? Or do you think because of this utility factor that you mentioned, there's a different business for you? Well, I think the similarity is that we don't envision ever charging our members for the service. And that is similar not only to Facebook and and Twitter and Snap and Instagram, it's similar to Google. We expect to have a free service that any neighbor can join and take advantage of. Now, in terms of our business model, we believe that there are opportunities, whether they're through traditional in-feed ads or or maybe more native things to next door, like local deals and coupons that might feel more like Groupon. We think that there are a tremendous number of opportunities that exist to connect folks to local businesses. And we not only think that's a big business opportunity for us, we think that's a trend in the world that's important and meaningful that people are starting to care about. It's that whole notion of in a world where we feel great buying everything from Amazon and and my family absolutely feels that way and we have so much respect for Amazon and we love the service. But when we think about supporting the businesses that are in our own areas, There isn't really an online service that makes it easy to find those entities. In many cases, they're service providers, they're doctors, they're dentists, they're architects, they're landscapers, and be able to connect with them in a way that enriches not only my own need, which is to find a pediatrician for my kids, but enriches the local community because I'm putting money back into my local community. And so that's where the opportunity is for us. And in like like payments and commerce type of stuff, like I'm going to order my pizza from the local pizzeria and you're going to take, you know, you're going to facilitate that transaction? I think it's less likely that it's, it's food delivery because there are a lot of people who do that and do that exceptionally well. I think it's probably more along the lines of if you find out that a neighbor has, uh, has has worked with a painter to paint his fence and you think the fence is really beautiful and you want the same thing, we might be able to introduce you to that painter or allow that painter to introduce himself or herself to you. If you go to Nextdoor and you search for plumber because your sink isn't working, then we'll be able to either with a simple search ad that looks like something you'd find on Google or something that may be a little bit more Nextdoor-ish like rankings of plumbers that your neighbors have recommended, we might be able to connect you with that service provider. So I think it's probably... In some cases, uh, it could be transactions. So we could create a marketplace for babysitters. Mm -hmm. Babysitters are sort of a a very apocryphal example at Nextdoor because you want to find a babysitter that lives near you, that is in the neighborhood, that, that makes you feel good. But one of the most difficult things with babysitters after finding one is you got to pay them in cash and you've got to have that cash on hand and, and they've got to understand how they're going to accept the payment. And so 
maybe creating something seamless for them. That's where we might focus on the transactions. But I think in most cases, we think about it at a higher level, which is how do we create a connection between neighbors who want to support their local businesses and the local businesses who are doing a great job supporting those neighbors? So you, you brought up a really good point, which is you mentioned Amazon, right? And local is is not easy and i think the way you describe it makes a lot of sense everyone has a neighborhood they have their local places they go whether it be a restaurant or uh you know you need a handyman or something like that but you know facebook has tried to do this google has tried to get local to some extent it works in terms of helping you find someone but i wouldn't say anyone's fully capitalized on the idea that you just described you're why is it so hard like what makes it so hard well first of all you're exactly right and and as entrepreneurs we typically say that if something isn't hard it's probably already been done if something isn't uh, in need of a new solution then there is no business opportunity to create something from scratch and so in the case of local the thing that has been extremely difficult is establishing meaningful scale in a way that feels authentic because local is local. And so the things that you do to make it feel local in the San Francisco Bay Area may be very different than what are necessary in Odessa, Texas, where I grew up. And so where most technology platforms can come out with one solution and spread that not just across a number of cities, but the world, it's the same product for the entire world. We have to think about things like neighborhood boundaries and neighborhood names and the social norms within neighborhoods that are very different even within San Francisco, much less between San Francisco and Odessa. Mm -hmm. And that has been the case with local from the very beginning. If you think about two of the most prominent private local companies, there's Uber and Airbnb. And those two companies have really shown the power of when you unlock the potential of the local economy with a technology tool that makes it seamless. Look at the kinds of revenues that they're able to generate, right? But for Uber and Airbnb, when they launch in different markets, they may have to do different things from market to market. It's not like they launch one product in one area and they can then spread it out everywhere. Yeah, it's got to be very personal to each location. Otherwise, it's not going to feel like it belongs to the neighborhood. If it doesn't feel local, then people won't adopt it. There's a reason that you chose to live in San Francisco. And if San Francisco feels like San Jose, well, then what's the point? Right. Right. The thing that makes local so interesting and so valuable, and, and we say that we're fiercely loyal to this notion of local, the thing that makes it exciting is it's unique. It's not the same everywhere. How do you deal with user concerns around privacy or, or information? I mean, you guys are, are really asking a lot of your users in the sense that they have to validate an actual address, right? And the babysitter example is a great one, but that also poses a lot of potential safety issues, right? I mean, you're interacting with, I don't know, potentially a, a young person in your neighborhood I don't know. There's just like a local creates a lot of privacy issues as well. I think you're right. Whenever you're talking about real world communities, the stakes are higher. And and so the things that we do in regards to verifying people's addresses, in regards to requiring your first name and last name, in regards to having a, a pretty low tolerance for any kinds of shenanigans that you may pull with your neighbors, those are all things we do because ultimately... The trust you feel for next door and the trust that you feel communicating with your neighbors, that is 100% correlated with how much you use the product. If you don't trust next door, you won't ask next door and your neighbors in this case for a babysitter recommendation. If you do trust your neighbors and you do trust the platform, then you will ask your neighbors for whatever you need, whatever service provider you need. And so 
at the end of the day, I think we think of ourselves as a community company, not a technology company, a community company. What we need to be world-class at is creating these local communities in a way that they feel trusted, supported, authentic, and that's very, very, very hard. And that's where we believe we have a secret sauce that no one else has. What do you, what do, you do for trust, right? That's something that you kind of, someone's got to take that initial leap of faith and say, hey, I'm going to try next door for this babysitter and I'm going to leave my kids with this person. How do you get them to make that initial first step? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. The first is we do require verification of address. And so you you know from the very top that the people you're talking to are your actual neighbors. The second thing we do is all of the conversations are private. And so if you just think about the internet at large, friction in joining a service is typically anathema to the success of a company, right? The more friction you have, the less likely it is that people join. But to join next door, you have to put in your address before you even see what the product looks like. So we created that friction knowing that we'd have a lot of drop-off because ultimately we felt like once people understood why the friction was there, they would value it. Uh, You think about private conversations. It means that none of the data, none of the information, even the helpful stuff inside next door can be found via Google. Right. And so even as a growth mechanism for the company, there's no search engine optimization. There's no search engine marketing. There's no opportunity for us to advertise or even sample the kinds of things that you find inside next door because we made the decision to keep it private. Other things that we do to make it feel authentic to you, every single neighborhood has a neighborhood boundary and neighborhood name that has been created by your neighbors not created by us. And so uh, when you join next door and you see that your neighborhood, in my case, it's called Outer Broadway. I think yours is probably the East Marina or maybe something like that. That is a name that would only, Central Marina, that would only feel familiar if you actually live there. And so the whole idea is next door is not about the virtual world. It's about the real world. And so when we think about building products and product features, we're thinking deeply about how does this work in the real world? Mm-hmm. When you think about, and I know that we've touched on some of the ways that you're not a traditional social network in that sense, but when you think about the businesses there, and again, you guys are going to, into the advertising aspect of this right now, the ability to scale is huge, right? We've seen what can happen when growth gets stalled with Twitter, Uh, Snap has been public for like three weeks and everyone's already a little nervous about can Snap grow the way that we want it to. When you describe kind of that initial obstacle of not only giving up your address, but not even really being able to see the product until you you take those steps, is there concern that this could hamper growth? Is there any plan or, or strategy around making it a little easier to sign up in hopes that you don't have to run into those issues? There's not just a concern, it's a reality growth for us is much more difficult than other companies. The first year of the company's existence, we had 175 neighborhoods using Nextdoor, only 175. There are 180,000 neighborhoods in the country. And so I remember being in a board meeting and saying, okay, we've now launched the 175th neighborhood. And Bill looked at me and said, how many neighborhoods are there in the country? And I said, I don't know, we think maybe 170, 180,000. And he sort of looked at me and he said, okay, so Based on our run rate, it's going to take us 100 years to get all of these neighborhoods, right? And so from the very beginning, this has been uh, one of the things that we've been thinking critically about, which is really the balance between fast growth 
and quality and trust of experience. And so we are constantly trying to balance those things. I'm delighted to say that today we have 130,000 neighborhoods that are using Nextdoor. And so at some point very soon, probably by even the end of this year, we'll have over 90% of the neighborhoods in the country using Nextdoor. But it's taken six years. Right. It has not been overnight. We haven't had the success that an Instagram or a Snap or some of these incredible rocket ships get to experience where they go from zero to 100 million users overnight. For us, it's a little bit more like LinkedIn. It's get big slow. It's think about quality over quantity. And the thing that we're always thinking about is, can we maintain this constant growth because when you're small and you have constant growth, it doesn't feel like much because you have a very small base. But if you're large and you're still growing because of compounding, you're suddenly really big. And I remember so many different experiences over the last six years where I've told people about Nextdoor and they said, oh yeah, that sounds like a good concept, but I haven't seen it myself. And I thought to myself, man, it's so hard to even get this thing started. You got to draw the neighborhood boundary. You got to make sure that the name's correct. You need 10 neighbors to join to even launch your Nextdoor neighborhood. But it's been completely worth it because today, for example, in the Bay Area, by the end of this year, we'll have 50% of the households in the DMA of the Bay Area. That's go all the way down south to Gilroy, the all DMA, the way up sorry, to the DMA. County. What is the DMA? The DMA, which is just a, a way of describing the entire Bay Area, as far okay. south as Gilroy, so 50% as far of north as Mendocino County. 50% of the households will be using Nextdoor. And that's just an amazing amount of reach that you rarely see from any kind of, of technology company, including the big social network. So it's very slow and steady. We're frustrated by the fact that it's slow, but as long as it remains steady, we're patient. You're just now starting to get into international growth. You uh, launched in the UK and the Netherlands. I'm curious, like, how does that focus on privacy change when you try to expand internationally? The privacy piece is less part of the challenge, although that's an intrinsic challenge to growth. I think the real challenge is, like we have taken so much care to make Nextdoor feel very authentic in the U.S., it needs to feel very authentic in any of the foreign territories that we expand into. So uh, when we launched in the Netherlands a year ago, we hired folks in the Netherlands to help us understand neighborhood boundaries and neighborhood customs and the way that neighbors relate to each other and the sorts of things that they say. And in many cases, we actually changed the product. And so again, uh, Nextdoor was not as imminently scalable as we might like a technology product to be, where you have two people in a garage who create something and then they put it out on the app store and all of a sudden they have users from 50 different countries. That's just not the way Nextdoor has worked. Um, we have had to, again, use a lot of care, um, have a, a, a very, very strong attention to detail and really understand how do we create Nextdoor for the Netherlands, not how do we take the Nextdoor for the United States and just shove it onto right. the Netherlands. And so we did that in the Netherlands. We're delighted to say a year later, 40% of the neighborhoods in the Netherlands are using Nextdoor. About six, seven months ago, we launched in the UK, all four countries of the UK, and we're already at 40% of the neighborhoods there as well. So we've been blown away by the positive response to Nextdoor. And on some level, it shouldn't be 
a surprise because this notion of creating stronger and safer communities, really bolstering uh, your local life, that's not something that is intrinsically American or something that is only evident in the United States. This is really more of a primal need that we have to strengthen the relationships with the people around us. And so we're very bullish on international, but like it did in the U.S., it won't be something where we can snap our fingers and boom, we're everywhere. We'll have to take this the same way that we've taken everything else, which is slow but steady. How do your investors feel about that? So you guys have taken like $200 million, I mean, not insignificant amounts of money, right? Uh, It's been, what, you said six years since you launched. So are they pretty patient people? We've been exceptionally fortunate to have investors like Bill at Benchmark and David Z at Greylock, who who oversaw the growth of LinkedIn, which in some ways was also slow and steady, uh, and a host of other investors who ultimately believe that the size of the opportunity is so large and so valuable, and the amount of impact that we can have on the world, both from a business standpoint and a human standpoint, that potential is so large that it's worth taking the risk of this sort of slow road mm-hmm. to success. Everyone around the table, investors included, would love for everything to go faster. I think that's a, that's a good tension to have. It's good to feel urgency. It's good to be impatient. It's good to always be thinking about ways to go faster. But we have to balance that at next door with this trust and authenticity and this foundation that we've created that is really at the core of everything we do. And so it's, it's a trade-off that we're aware of. We're always trying to get better. Um, but I always tell new potential investors, don't invest in this company unless you have the same kind of conviction in our strategy and the path that we're going to take to success that we have. Yeah. Because otherwise, it will be very frustrating. So you just started bringing in revenue for the first time, what, this year, the last couple months, really? So it wouldn't be anytime soon, but do you want? Do you anticipate this being a publicly traded company someday? Like, is that your goal to IPO with Nextdoor? I think saying that an IPO is a goal is is something that has probably been overplayed, and it's it's something that ultimately, when you are on the verge of an IPO, where I was with Shopping.com, you realize that it's really just another milestone along the way. An IPO is just a public financing. It's like raising money in the private markets. You're just doing it on the public markets now, obviously, because there's a lot more visibility, many more eyes on you. It's different. It's different because as a private company, we're lucky that we have a small group of investors that we share everything with, but the world at large has to wait until we share at regular intervals. That's different when you're a public company. If it makes sense for us to go public, and I absolutely think it will make sense for us to go public, that's something we'll do. If we feel like we can achieve our objectives, which is to have every neighbor and every neighborhood around the world using Nextdoor every day, then we might do that without going public. But going public is a very effective way to get the word out about companies. And we find that getting the word out about Nextdoor helps us grow faster. So it's a strategic thing for us. Usually public investors don't have quite the patience of... uh sounds like you're private investors, though. I think it really depends. I was reading something recently by Warren Buffett, and he talked about the power of compounding. And the idea behind compounding is you do have to be patient because you aren't going to get a short-term return. You're planning on the fact that over some long period of time, whether it's as short as a year or as long as a decade, you will get much more value if you are patient versus if you try to optimize something in the short term. So my belief is that the best investors in the world, at least this is what I've seen, they tend to be patient, but they're looking deeply at fundamentals. So you can't just be patient in a vacuum without looking at data. 
as long as when you look at the underlying unit economics and core growth metrics, as long as you see a slow and steady growth in those and a consistency that feels like it's sustainable, then I think the best companies in the world are the ones that grow slowly. So I want to touch on a few non-Nextdoor things while I have you that I think uh, you'd be great to There's nothing else on. in my life. It's I my know. family, my three Only kids, next and next door. door. Only next door, but I'm going to force you outside of your, your bubble there. First is Uber. Uber is kind of the tech company of the moment for a lot of the wrong reasons. You have gone through some not-so-great public press in the past uh, as a CEO of Opinions, uh, and yet, here you are. You're running next door. You clearly, you know, you have a, a trajectory here. How did you kind of get over that? And I guess maybe we should quickly specify. There was, a, there was an incident with your resume where you said you worked at McKenzie, and that wasn't true. There was a, a hit-and-run thing that ended up not, you know, was in the news. I guess, how have you done it? What would your advice be to someone like Travis who is going through this right now? I think the first thing is every situation is very different. And so it, it's it's not really my place to give anyone else advice. I, I feel like I have learned a ton from the adversity that that I've experienced. And, and in almost all cases, I wish that I wouldn't have to experience that adversity, but I've come through more strongly. And, and I've learned something about myself and about the world that I think I've tried to put into practice. Whether it's Uber or any other company, it's I think pretty naive to imagine that it's always up and to the right. And Uber is an unbelievable entity that has largely been up and to the right. And so um, I believe that that Uber will go through some of this adversity the way that, that many great companies do, which is they'll take a look inside, they'll figure out what they could do better. Um, I know that Travis is already saying this. He's already doing it. Um, I know Travis. I obviously know Bill, who's on the board of, of, of Uber as a benchmark investor. And I can't speak to any of the specifics because all of these situations are so different. But what I can say is it's really hard at the time. But once you come out on the other side, um, it enables you to be better. And I think that's going to be the case for Uber. How do you keep employee morale and employee focus in moments like that? You know, when folks look at you and, and you're in the press for things that aren't great, how do you go up into work and do your Friday? I know you guys have your all-hands meetings because you embarrassed me by making everybody clap for me one time when I happened to be there. Uh, how, how do you keep that morale going when the press and the public is really focused on the company for the wrong reasons? I'm a big believer that companies are not about any one individual. And so this notion of the cult of the individual driving the morale of the company or the brand of the company, that's just something that I, I don't believe in. Uh, Nextdoor and its fortunes are so much bigger than me. And am I a piece of those? Of course I am. As a CEO, I'm a big piece of those. Uh, many of our employees are also big pieces. All of our employees are some piece. I think ultimately you want to keep employees focused on the mission of the company, both the financial mission and the human mission. And, and that's the thing that should drive our ego and esteem. And so if we feel like we're making progress against that mission, we should feel hopeful and optimistic and inspired. If we're not making progress, well, then we should work harder or we should feel more urgency or we should look inside and figure out what we can do better. But this idea that that my own personal fortunes are the ones that will impact the morale and emotions of my employees, we strive to build a company that's much stronger than any one person, certainly stronger than me. 
So I think that's totally fair, right? But, but at the same point, obviously, as the leader, people do look to you. And I know you said you don't want to give specific advice to Travis, but I guess in, in general, you said you learned a lot from these incidents. What's maybe the one most important thing that you do differently now that, you know, 10 years ago, you wish you could have told uh, near of back in like 2005? Gosh, there, there are so many things. I mean, there are so many things. I think one thing is um, when, when you start to experience adversity, um, it's difficult to really aggressively figure out what's going on and do something about it. Because when you first start to experience adversity, it's not that big a deal. It doesn't overshadow everything. Um, but sometimes what happens, particularly in our industry with the press cycle being the way it is, something can start small and then get big really fast. Very fast. And so the thing that, that we try to do at Nextdoor and I try to do in my own personal life is if there's an issue, deal with it. Like, don't avoid it. It's much easier to avoid. It's much easier to ignore. You don't want to have to look in the mirror and and admit things that maybe you're not proud of or maybe you don't like, and you'd rather focus on the fun stuff. But you really do have to focus on the difficult things first. And once you get those squared away, your path is a lot easier. I read recently, uh, if you do the hard things up front, then life is pretty easy. If you do the easy things up front, you're almost guaranteeing that life is going to be hard. And so I think the advice I would give myself, not just for 10 years ago, but really even today, as I think about raising my children, if you can make some of these tough decisions now, it will pave the way for future success. If you shy away from those tough decisions, then sometimes you're creating a bigger monster for yourself that's going to be up ahead. Last thing I want to ask you about before I let you go here is our new president, President Trump. First of all, you're I, really giving me the uh, softballs here. Kurt. I, Thank I waited you. till the very end till I, till I give you the hard ones. Uh, I want to know two things. Number one, how is this going to impact what you guys do, right? Because we just started talking about your international expansion. We talked about the importance of kind of each neighborhood being unique and being its own thing. Uh, his agenda is very different than what we dealt with for the last eight years. Does that change kind of your approach? Does it make you less likely or less interested in in going abroad right now? Do you have to change that strategy? We haven't changed our strategy at all. And and really, we believe that our strategy is larger than a presidential candidate. Uh, And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I mean, it's really separate from what's going on uh, on the national political field. We are about trying to build community. And we believe that in an increasingly divided world, whether it's our country or what we see in other countries, there's nothing more important than local community. There's nothing more important than feeling like we are connected to people around us. And so if anything, what's happening in our country and in many parts of the world, which is really sort of this partisan divide that has occurred, whether you're on the Hillary side or the Trump side, you're on a side. That's something that we're trying to do something about it next door. When you're a member of your neighborhood, there's no partisan notion. You're all in the neighborhood together. You're all going for the same stuff. You're all trying to make the neighborhood better for everyone. And so we think that on some, frankly, small level today, but we hope really big level in the future, we can provide an example with these neighborhoods that work together for the rest of the world. Because when I think about national politics in our country, it's less to me about Trump or Hillary. It's more about the fact that we aren't having conversations. Mm-hmm. We are choosing sides, and 
we are not listening to the other side and we're feeling like the other side isn't listening to us. And it's leading to a lack of constructive collaboration. And the world needs to come together. And unfortunately, it feels like it's being split apart. Are politicians using Nextdoor right now to to reach out to those local communities? On a local level, we have seen uh, more and more examples of where Nextdoor is used, not just by local politicians, but by concerned citizens and neighborhoods. Because um, if you think about some of the statistics around the national election, I think some something like half of Americans vote, only half of Americans vote. The numbers, if we look at a place like San Francisco in a local election, it's much lower. It's like 15% of San Franciscans vote on local issues. At the same time, probably 100% of San Franciscans complain about things that are going right. on in the city, right? Much easier that so way. So there is an opportunity, we believe, to uh, make it easier for people to be aware, either of very simple things like, hey, it's time to vote, and here's a close place for you to vote. And even Facebook is doing a lot of things on those levels, but we feel like we can do the same. But on a much deeper level, we believe that because you have an incentive to be neighborly with the people around you, uh, there may be an opportunity for us to have some of those conversations that could be divisive in other forums take place on Nextdoor in a way where we're more respectful, we're more collaborative, we're more open-minded. Yeah. And that's what we've seen happening. Is that the kind of stuff that, that we should expect to see from you? Like, is that a priority for you to get Nextdoor a little bit more involved in civic conversation and maybe get people to the polls? Is that something you care about uh, for the platform? We are actually a lot more high level. We care about things that build strong communities. And so in some communities, the local politics are a big part of what people care about. And we should give our members the tools so that they can have those constructive conversations about those things. In other communities, they're just focused on things like they're a bunch of lost dogs. How do we find them? Right. right. So this is, again, um, as we like to say, local tends to be context to the task. The task is different from neighborhood to neighborhood. In a neighborhood where there's lots of crime, the issue that they're really concerned about is break-ins. In a neighborhood where um, the houses are really large and spread apart, maybe the thing that they're focused on is how can they stay in touch even though they don't see each other all the time. So um, there are neighborhoods that care deeply about local politics, and I feel like we need to serve those. But it's not a top-line initiative for us um, because the only top-line initiative we have is building community. Back to personalization of those communities. Uh, Nirav, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now I'm going to hand it off to Kara Swisher one more time so she can tell you how to find more podcasts like this one. Thanks, Kurt. You can find all of Kurt Wagner's outstanding social media reporting on Recode.net. Thanks again to Nextdoor CEO Nero of Tolia for coming on the podcast. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews we've done with radical candor author Kim Malone-Scott, Enjoy CEO Ron Johnson, and TaskRabbit CEO Stacey Brown-Philpot, just to name a few. All of those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Two Embarrassed Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. 
Hey, Rico Decode listeners. Now that you've heard from Kara this week, come on over to Control What Delete to hear from the other head of Recode, Walt Mossberg. I'm Neil Patel, and every week on our podcast, Control Walt Delete, Walt and I discuss the week in tech, the news, and importantly from Walt, how the history of technology affects its future. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Control Walt Delete.